If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Why was there a Turkish mosque adorning Kew Gardens in the 18th century? This lost structure is just one of the landmarks and relics considered in a new book by broadcaster Fatima Manji. She joined us to talk about her journey across Britain, searching for items and places that recontextualise Britain's historical relationship with people of the Orient and point to a more complex national history. Putting the questions to Fatima was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. I wanted to start by asking you first, uh, Fatima, if you could introduce your book to our listeners and what it's uh, attempting to do. Thanks, Eleanor, and it's lovely to be with you. So my book is essentially a journey through Britain where I find objects and places that reveal rarely told histories about Britain. And I do this through objects and places in what I call heritage sites, so museums, galleries, stately homes. Uh, And all of these objects and places are linked to what we now know as South and West Asia and North Africa, but I use the term Orient. We can talk a little bit about that um, later on. But essentially, I use these objects and places to show us slices of history of how England at first and then later Britain was connected to these places and its peoples. And essentially, I went on a bit of an adventure through Britain on a detective hunt through heritage sites where I would search out these objects and sometimes I'd suddenly see a swirl of an Arabic letter or a darker hue of an oil painting Um, and I'd think, who is that? What is that object? Who is that person? 
And most importantly, why is it here? Yes. Um, to, to duck out, uh, before we dive into any more of those examples, perhaps we should uh, touch on this term, uh, this use of Orient a little bit more. I wondered if you could just give our listeners a little bit of extra context there for you, your use of it in this case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the term Orient can be an unfashionable term, and I think it's right that we shouldn't flatten histories. I don't believe there's such a thing as a distinct East and West And my book is actually about partly busting that myth. British history is, in fact, very interwoven with huge parts of the rest of the world, partly because of the empire, but not solely because of that. But I think we have to recognise that there was and is a region that is somewhat culturally contiguous. And in my book, I talk about that being modern day West and South Asia and North Africa. And it's difficult to use purely geographic terms when we're talking about this region, because At the time, some of these countries that that now exist didn't. So one of the examples I draw on is uh, my book features woodcarvers from what we now know as modern-day Pakistan. And these woodcarvers used Persian calligraphy in a carving that was inspired by Egyptian or North African architecture. And then this work was put on display in a colonial exhibition in London. Now, Could we just describe these woodcarvers as Pakistani? I don't think we could, because I don't think that captures the full range of influences um, that their artwork was drawing on. So that's partly why I use the term Orient. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between using the term Orient and being Orientalist. I don't think that we should be flattening, I don't think that we should be flattening the region or drawing on stereotypes, but I think we can Uh, note how countries and peoples and cultures were influenced by each other. um, And there was a broader sense of an Orient. Yes, and there are so many fascinating examples in your book. Um, And I think a really interesting point is that in many cases, it shows that uh, people and influences from um, the the Orient, and I'll I'll use that that term as well, in this case, aren't met with suspicion or fear, but with excitement and curiosity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I argue in my book is that I believe that Britain has been schooled out of its love for the region that I describe as the Orient. And I take you through a journey from starting at Elizabethan England all the way up to the First World War. And I look at how Britain interacted with the Orient and its peoples. And I find all these amazing and fascinating and intriguing, sometimes disturbing stories um, about how Britain interacted with that part of the world. Um, So it it is a really... um, For me, I thought that it revealed slices of history about Britain that we have forgotten. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So where did you go in your research for this this book? And and what more common stories did you find are kind of being told through heritage properties and museums right now? Well, I was lucky enough to have thought of this uh, book idea in 2016. So a lot of the research I began doing in 2016, 2017, 2018, when I first visited some of these heritage sites. So by the time it came to the the lockdown last year, I was in a fortunate position of not having to visit places which were obviously closed. But I I essentially went on a journey across Britain. there are obviously lots of sites in London and the southeast, um, along the southeast coast, in Brighton and Hastings, and but also I went to Wales, to Past Castle, to Edinburgh, and to Glasgow, 
And I found that tucked away in heritage sites in some little museums and galleries, there are objects and places that have either been lost or concealed or overlooked. And unfortunately, and this is changing, but unfortunately, I think many of our heritage sites still tell a fairly monolithic story. Lots of places are trying to think more carefully about how they display objects and which histories they tell. But there is still this prevailing idea in popular culture and history that anyone who is non-white came to Britain after 1948, after the empire went rush, Uh, And that is where non-white British history begins. But in fact, I found lots of clues to suggest otherwise. And for me, this wasn't just about noting a historical record, about correcting the facts, which is essentially people of brown-skinned hues, people of the Orient, were present here. But it's also about reflecting on how Britain itself was shaped by these interactions, whether it's in language or the names of places or attitudes or scientific discoveries. Absolutely. Uh, and we've we've um, chosen to discuss one particular chapter um, in your book for this episode, uh, in which you write on the 18th century figure Tipu Sultan. Um, and I wondered if you could start by telling listeners a little about this episode and the consequences and what, how we can begin to sort of reframe our understanding of it. So essentially, the book begins in Elizabethan England and ends up in the First World War. And so it's not uh, a comprehensive book, but it's slices of history. And one of the more difficult and darker stories is that around the figure of Tipu Sultan. So in some of the chapters, the Lost Mosque, for instance, it's simply fascinating and intriguing that a mosque should have been built in Kew Gardens in the Georgian era. The story of Tipu Sultan and his interactions with Britain is much darker. It's, It's much less intriguing and much more disturbing. Now, some of your listeners may be more familiar. Some of your listeners may be more familiar with his story, but it's not a history that's commonly told nowadays. So, essentially, Tipu Sultan was a ruler in the southern Indian kingdom of Mysore until he was violently ousted in 1799 by the British East India Company, and replaced by a five-year-old king, who was effectively a puppet for the region that was now governed by the British. And after a series of bloody battles, Tipu Sultan was defeated, his kingdom was pillaged, Uh, there was a a whole load of looting, uh, and we read of horrific descriptions of blood in the streets at the time. And much of that loot, many of Tipu's own belongings, were brought back to Britain and scattered across the country. And some of them, many of them, still remain here today. And They range uh, in all kinds of things from swords to clothing uh, to cutlery, and they are in all kinds of places. So many of them are to be found in Powys Castle in Wales, also in Edinburgh's museums, in London's Apsley House. And then perhaps the most famous object is Tipu's tiger at the Victorian Albert Museum. Uh, And in this chapter in my book, I take you on a journey to see these objects uh, and to get a sense of them, but also through the history of the propaganda surrounding the battle against Tipu at the time and in subsequent years. And the myths that were created around Tipu as a villain uh, and Britain's East India Company acting as a sort of benevolent force. Uh, And all of this took place through artworks, through plays, through newspaper reports and even in Parliament. 
Now, today, I would venture a guess that most Britons probably don't know too much about Tipu Sultan. Perhaps the tiger at the v is, is the most familiar object. But his myth did once loom large over Britain. And that history has been forgotten. And partly I wrote about him because I believed it was an important chapter in British history that we should know about and we should understand where these objects came from uh, and question why they are still in our heritage sites and how they are displayed. But also, uh, rather disturbingly, Sometimes when I went to heritage sites, I heard things that worried me. And in one instance, I heard a guide tell visitors that uh, the British went to India to help the Indians. And that was the point of the colonial empire. And that was why Tipu Sultan was ousted. And that was a guide in a heritage site. And so I thought that some of that history needed correcting. Um, And that was one of the reasons why I included his story in my book. But I also think that his story and the the myths and the propaganda around the British Empire have something to say to us today as we rethink Britain's role in the world and we rethink how we talk about empire. I think this is one particular part of history that we can really draw on. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think it's also really important that people from different walks of life need to be a part of telling our history. So I want to see people from different backgrounds volunteer at heritage sites and help tell the stories. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And if these um, fascinating objects can shed extra light, extra context and help to um, educate and remind people about those those factors you've just mentioned, um, what is the role of of sites that obviously don't exist anymore? You mentioned the um, Britain's first mosque at Kew. What what can you say about that and how we can add that extra context there? Well, this is a story I absolutely love. And Essentially, anyone who has ever been to Kew Gardens will know that there is a huge Chinese pagoda structure that 
that uh, looms large over Kew Gardens and visitors love to take pictures with it and, and it's a beautiful object. Um, and it was created in the Georgian era. And it turns out that the pagoda was actually part of a trio and it was created uh, alongside an Alhambra arch and a Turkish mosque. And I remember when I first heard the idea that a mosque was created at Kew Gardens, I found that incredible. Uh, and then it turned out that this was, in fact, the first mosque structure uh, created in Britain. I mean, they obviously weren't worshippers inside praying, but it was created very authentically to look like a mosque with very specific detail around the calligraphy and use of Quranic verses. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, unfortunately, there's no trace of that mosque at Kew Gardens today. And so I take um, uh, my readers on a journey as to how this mosque might have been created, why it is they, that a Georgian princess, the mother of George III, would have commissioned a mosque to be created in Kew Gardens. And along that way, we sort of find out all kinds of um, extraordinary detail about Turkish courtiers in the Georgian court, um, how inoculation first came to Britain, and all kinds of um, astonishing stories that, that I never really heard about. And then I use that um, chapter to reflect on the present. So every chapter, I, I use the history to, of the past to reflect on the present, because I don't just want these to be lovely stories. I think that we should think about them um, and use them to reflect on our current state of affairs. So I look at the idea that we had this lost mosque at Kew Gardens, but what happens when a community tries to build a mosque today? So in that particular chapter, I look at one community in Lincoln that experienced the far right marching through their town and a suspected arson attack when they tried to build their mosque. Um, because I very much believe that history shouldn't just be about setting the record straight. It shouldn't just be about busting myths of the past. It's also about reflecting and busting myths of the present. Right. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. and. I wanted to ask about, uh, obviously, in looking at this ongoing reckoning with with the history of Britain and with empire, how do we go about that? I mean, your book is doing just that, but how? What are the next steps, and and what can listeners look out for when visiting heritage properties or sites of historical interest? I mean, it's fascinating because when I first began researching this book, the the sort of conversation around statues and the Black Lives Matter movement hadn't taken um, the sort of, um, hadn't had the steam behind it that it does now. So I think the conversation is in a slightly different place where we are beginning to have a debate, albeit I think we have a debate that's sort of filled with more heat than light. I think first and foremost, we've got to look at how do we document historical fact. How do we set the record straight? And that's what all of this is about. Um, we've got to remember that colonial history and Britain's interactions with the Orient before a formalised empire aren't niche. They're integral to the story of Britain. And that's how we should view all of this. I think some organisations have had a structural problem where they fail to recognise this. Um, as individuals, I think we've just got to demand better of our history. We've got to demand better of our heritage sites and our, our culture and media depictions. So, for instance, one of the things I questioned was that in all the Tudor depictions that 
we see uh, on the stage and on screen and in schools, why do we never hear about Elizabeth I's exchanges with the Ottoman Empire? I mean, she wrote letters to sultans and sultanas. She exchanged gifts with them. Um, There's a wonderful story in my book about how an organ was sent to Constantinople, uh, which is now known as Istanbul, and a female Ottoman courtiers writing to Elizabeth I asking her to send them makeup. Why weren't we told about these stories in schools? Why don't we see them in in Tudor depictions on our screens? And as individuals, when we're visiting places, I think we should act as detectives and guardians of our history. So keep an eye out for clues. Ask questions if something looks a little bit odd or unfamiliar. Why is this object here? Can you tell me more about it? If something is poorly marked, we should say, why doesn't this sign tell us enough? I think it's also really important that people from different walks of life need to be a part of telling our history. So I want to see people from different backgrounds volunteer at heritage sites and help tell the stories. And also to support our heritage organisations when they try to tell broader stories about Britain, because I think this isn't about fighting each other. It's about setting historical records straight and being more inclusive in the stories that we tell about Britain. Yes, absolutely. And it feels like there is such real appetite for for many of those stories that you mentioned. Um, But I did want to ask about this obvious conflict or or challenge, perhaps is a better word, of reframing, obviously, what might be a narrative of brave colonial conquest versus a, you know, a confronting and in the case of Tipu Sultan, a very brutal act by British forces in India. So could you talk a bit more about that challenge? Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, it's about saying to people, what were the facts about our history? What actually happened? And let's look at the facts. Instead of deciding based on our political opinions today, we can look at the historical facts and the records. And by the way, these are these are based largely on British sources. So men, many of the documents that I looked at exist in British archives today. The objects and places that I draw on are all on British soil today. So this is about our history and we need to tell our history accurately. And I think, you know, we can have debates about which statues belong where and should certain objects be returned. And I think those are important debates. And when we're talking about some aspects, such as the brutalities of slavery and how certain heritage sites were built from the proceeds of slavery, I think those are very important conversations. And My book doesn't touch on those, but there are important historians documenting that, and I wouldn't want to take away from that in any way. But I think that there are stories beyond that where we can reflect on the past, where we can at times celebrate uh, certain interactions and at other times be honest about the brutalities. Um, And I think that's just about being mature about our own history, and it will help us at a time when Britain is rethinking where we are on the world stage. And we are thinking about how we tell our history, but also about how we interact with each other and how we live with each other. And I think making sure that our history is honest and tells a broad spectrum of history that will make everybody feel welcome in our heritage sites, that will make them feel that there is something for everyone when they walk into a stately home or a museum or a gallery is going to be beneficial for us, not just because it makes us feel good, but actually commercially it makes sense that museums and galleries want a a range of people to come into their doors and 
pay, you know, not only uh, buy the ticket, but also spend money in their gift shops and their cafes. And that's how we keep these places alive. Um, it's not by telling a narrow monolithic history. Right. Well, well, I hope that we have given your book and your and your wonderful answers today have given people some food for thought as uh, more heritage sites reopen and people get back out there again this summer. Um, and I wanted to finish up just by asking when you were doing all your research back in 2016, 17, before the last few years, what do you have a um, a favourite site, favourite revelation or relic that has just stayed with you into 2021? Oh, I, I find that a very difficult question. It's sort of, <laughs> um, I think it's akin to asking me to pick a favourite child. Um, <laughs> it, I, I mean, there are just so many. For me, I, I thought the Lost Mosque at Kew Gardens is a really fascinating one, partly because it doesn't exist and the only memory we have of it is through sketches. And so when I went to the British Library to look at the archives and I saw these wonderful sketches... It sort of required a bit of imagination when I would return to, to Kew Gardens on a, on a number of occasions to picture what it would look like if it were here today. And I think it would be wonderful if there were some uh, sign or memory of it at Kew Gardens itself so that people would be able to learn about that history and, and maybe feel differently about the role of mosques in Britain today. Um, but, the, but there were so many wonderful objects and, and 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 paintings and carvings and i just loved seeking them out and tracing my finger around the carvings and imagining how difficult it would have been to put this together and the histories that some of these objects and places have seen that was fatima manji hidden heritage Rediscovering Britain's Lost Love of the Orient is out now, published by Chateau and Windus, and you can find a link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Eric Berkowitz will be speaking about the history of censorship. <laughs> <laughs>